Hi, my name is Jen Carlquist, and I am a physician assistant. I work full-time at a cardiology practice, and I work part-time in the emergency room. And today, I want to give you a behind-the-scenes view of the workup on palpitations. So what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about how to do a targeted history and how to ask the right questions to get to the answer. We're going to talk about choosing the right labs, diagnostics, and imaging for your patient with palpitations. And we're going to talk about my patented chief complaint-based approach to reading EKGs. And also, I'm going to talk to you about high-risk findings for sudden cardiac arrest and how not to miss them. Let's start with some myth-busting, though. The first myth I'd like to bust is that young people can't have heart disease. I love when one of my attendings says, why did you get an EKG on that person? They're young. They don't have heart disease. And, you know, this is true. They probably don't have what we know to be heart disease, but they can have conduction deficits. They can have conduction disorders. They can have arrhythmias. They can have congenital things like Brugada syndrome or hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy that rear their head in the teen years. And when I have somebody come into the emergency room with palpitations, these are the things that I'm thinking about. Because really, why guess when you could know? Why tell this patient and write them off that they have anxiety because they're young and potentially miss something big? I had a gentleman who was brought into the emergency room, 21, cardiac arrest, asleep in bed next to his wife, started snoring. She couldn't wake him up. She tried really hard to wake him up, but she couldn't. She finally called 911 when she realized he wasn't breathing, and they directed her how to start CPR. She started CPR, and eventually the ambulance came, hooked him up, and found that he was in V-fib. Shocked him four times, the last time at 360, and he finally got a rhythm back. Luckily, he was neurologically intact. What if that was your patient that you discharged? How bad would you feel? An EKG is cheap and easy. And when I say it's easy, it's easy for us because all we have to do is say, get EKG. And somebody else has to put the patches on, print the paper out, and track you down and put it in your hand. And really, all you have to do is look at it for four high-risk findings, which I'm going to talk about. That's what we're looking at. Myth number two. If there's something really wrong with your patient, the machine will catch it. I wish that this was true. And if you're one of those people that uses the software machine's interpretation to analyze your EKG, know that a lot of times it's going to be wrong. It's going to be dead wrong. The patient that was brought into the emergency room, 21-year-old male, my cardiac arrest that had Brugada's door time EKG read normal EKG. Not only was it not normal, but it didn't pick up Brugada's. In fact, most EKG software interpretations will not pick up Brugada's. They will not pick up things like hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. They will give you indirect clues, which we'll talk about, but they won't come out and say it. So the moral of the story is that the machine is just a machine. And we will always have job security because we actually have to continue looking at our EKG. We have to actually read the EKG and look for the specific things that can kill our patients. I think one of the most valuable things when I'm talking to a patient about palpitations is the history. And I think this is true with most things and especially most cardiac patients. But the questions I like to ask are very specific. So the first thing I wanna know is 
what brings it on? What are they doing when it starts? A patient who is just sitting down, doing nothing, not under any stress, I'm going to be a little bit more worried about something pathologic. If a patient is sitting there arguing with their boyfriend or girlfriend and starts to have palpitations, or they've just had a very large monster drink, I'm probably not so worried. I want to know also how long do the symptoms last? Because this tells me a lot. If the symptoms maybe start and come and go, they last maybe a second or two seconds, I'm not so worried, especially if they're not associated with things like dizziness, feeling lightheaded, feeling near syncopal. These are things that I'm not so worried about. Probably these are things like PACs, premature atrial contractions, or PVCs, premature ventricular contractions, which can bother patients a lot. In fact, that's the common thing we see. That's the thing that's not going to kill them, but it can still bother them and be uncomfortable. But I, as a provider, am not so worried about that. I'm worried if they say, yes, I was sitting there. It lasted for several seconds. I felt like I was going to pass out. I felt lightheaded. My, my vision became blurry. These are things that make me worry a little bit more. I also want to know, what does it feel like? And this is actually, I think, probably more of a question of curiosity on my part, because I find that patients that are older, especially the elderly females with AFib, it's funny that they, a lot of them will complain of feeling like there's something fluttering in their chest, like a butterfly. And it's sort of like when chest pain patients complain of an elephant sitting on their chest, this is some sort of common theme and common thread I see through patients who have AFib. They feel like a butterfly is in their chest. I don't think there's anything to back that up in the literature, but it's certainly something that I see. Is it positional? Because if it starts when they're getting up from a seated position, I'm worried about blood pressure. I'm worried about things like pastoral orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. I want to know if they got up too quickly. And if they're young and that's happening, I'm a little more worried because as we get older, the mechanisms to increase blood pressure are a little slower when we're standing up. And so the other thing you have to think about is that patients that are older are usually on some sort of beta blocker or blood pressure medication anyway, and so not as worried about that. It could be that their heart's trying to just speed up to compensate for the blood pressure not yet being high enough to support their cerebral perfusion when they stand up too fast. So that's one of the things I'm looking for. The next question I'm going to ask them when they have palpitations is what was your blood pressure? I want to know, especially if they are having near syncope or syncopal episodes, I want to know that. And usually the answer is going to be, I don't know, or I didn't check. And that's kind of the answer I expect but sometimes they'll actually have done it and have some sort of printout for you, especially the engineers of the world. It's, it's a funny common theme. I'll see engineers seem to bring in spreadsheets of their blood pressure, especially after they retire. And I think it's because they need something to do. They're very smart minds. They need something to keep themselves occupied. But if they have not got a blood pressure and they're experiencing these symptoms frequently, I will tell them or tell a family member to get a blood pressure when they're feeling symptomatic because this is very vital information that can direct your workup. For example, if they have low blood pressure and they're feeling palpitations when this happens, I'm, especially if they're older, more concerned about 
ventricular tachycardia, but I'm also, again, thinking about that blood pressure and I'm looking at their medications. And that's the next question I'm thinking is what medications are you taking? And I don't ever want them to say, oh, well, from memory, I take X, Y, and Z. I want the actual pill bottles. I want them in my hand. I want them on the counter because I want to look at the bottles. I want to see if they're actually taking them. I want to see if there's duplicates. I want to see if they can actually read the labels. And a lot of times they can't. And I ask them, what is this pill for? And I want to know that they're actually taking the pills correctly. So I sort of inadvertently quiz them because a lot of times they'll be taking too many pills or not enough pills. And honestly, if you really think about it, it's kind of a full-time job keeping track of your blood pressure and medications. And especially if you have limited mental capacity, especially if you have Alzheimer's, think of how challenging that could be. And it would be challenging for me to keep track of 20 medications. And usually these more chronic older patients are on a ton of medications. So always think about that. Always ask for the pill bottles. Don't, don't look at the list. Look at the actual bottles and get the information for yourself. The next question I'm asking is, do you drink alcohol? And I'm asking that because patients who drink alcohol are more at risk for atrial fibrillation. And so I'm kind of always in the back of my mind expecting my chronic alcoholic patients or patients who even drink a lot of alcohol more than moderate consumption at some point to go into AFib. And I warn them about this. And one of the things I bring up, especially in the routine visit, is if they drink. So any plans on stopping drinking? And if the answer is no, I'll say, well, how do you feel about taking blood thinners? And when they ask why I ask that, I always respond, well, that's kind of where you're heading if you keep drinking because you're going to be at, at risk for stroke. And so when you go into AFib, so we're going to need to make some decisions about what blood thinner to put you on. Hope you don't like spinach. That's usually a big motivational interviewing question for me. Now, the big money question, and if you remember nothing else out of this today, if you can remember to ask your patient if they have any family history of sudden death at a young age, this is really the money question because this is where you're going to find out if there's any sort of genetic component to what's going on. If they tell you, oh yeah, Uncle Sammy died at 34 of something wrong with his heart, that's a little worrisome, especially if they have multiple family members dying at a young age and they're complaining of pretty much anything cardiac. You want to think about the big players. You want to think about Brigadas, obviously. You want to think about hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, especially in your young patients. And you want to think about WPW, although it usually doesn't lead to death. And you want to think about prolonged QT because patients with congenital prolonged QT can go into torsades, which is a form of VTAC where the points twist and it can be fatal and it's important to catch. So these are things you can see on an EKG if you look closely. When it comes to assessing palpitations, as it turns out, age matters. And I like to use the Simpson family as an analogy. And I like to use Lisa Simpson as my younger age group. So patients that are Lisa's age, so we're thinking preteen, and we'll say, we'll include the teen population here as well. 
when I have someone who has palpitations, I'm honestly expecting to see, well, first of all, nothing, right? I'm expecting to see normal sinus or sinus tachycardia, especially if they're anxious. But more commonly, I'm expecting to see PVCs, PACs, if anything at all. However, this is also the age group, especially the later teens and the early 20s, that we need to start looking for things like WPW. And we need to think about, again, brugadas and hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. Now, when we start getting into the Marge Simpson age group, definitely thinking about supraventricular tachycardia and also thinking about WPW, it would be less likely in this age group to see something like ventricular tachycardia. However, it's not impossible. I'm going to talk about a little later wide complex tachycardias in the younger population and why it's so hard to figure out what's going on. Is it an SVT with aberrancy or is it VTAC and how can we figure that out in the clinic or in the ER? Well, hopefully you're not figuring that out in the clinic. You're calling 911. But the Marge Simpson population, again, SVT, WPW, and you know, honestly, again, we still have to think about anxiety PVCs and PACs. And I will tell you that in clinic, we get a lot of referrals for PVCs. And one of the things that we look at is how big their PVC burden is. And we look at how much it actually interferes with their life. And we also look at their ejection fraction. And these are things that we use in cardiology to decide whether or not they would qualify for a ablation. Now, when you get to grandpa's age group, and we're going to include the late 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Oh, we might as well throw in the hundreds, right? We're thinking if we hook this patient up and they have palpitations, I'm going to expect to see atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response. So I'm looking to see a fast AFib. That's what I expect to see. But I also am pretty worried about ventricular tachycardia. Now, it's less likely that they're going to have WPW at this age group because if they've had WPW, it's probably going to have been identified and handled by now. They're most likely going to have had some sort of ablation. I'm also less likely to see an SVT because, again, these are things that are found addressed and handled either by medication or ablation. Again, VT and AFib with RVR in grandpa's group. Now, when you do an exam on a patient with palpitations specifically, I'm looking for, are they fidgety? Because this is something that I will commonly see in my AFibbers. And again, I don't have any literature to back this up, but usually my fidgety patients are type A, and usually type A patients are more at risk for AFib. And I'm looking at that. I'm looking at, are they thin framed? Because I want to think about thyroid as well. So if they're super thin and they've never had a thyroid check, this is something I'm going to add in their workup. I'm looking for, are they obese? Again, thinking about thyroid. Or are they in pain? Could they be having palpitations because they are in sinus tack and they're feeling it because they're in pain? Under the HEENT exam, I'm looking for dry mucous membranes because in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, are they dehydrated? I'm looking at their neck for goiter. I'm looking at their eyes for exophthalmos. I'm looking for nystagmus. And specifically, I'm looking for a bulbous nose because patients, again, who are alcoholics will have skin changes on the face and their nose will become very red and vascular and bulbous. And it's a clue for me 
to ask and probe a little bit harder about alcohol. Again, thinking about AFib. I'm looking at their cardiovascular exam, obviously for murmurs, for rubs, for clicks, but really going to feel their pulse for any irregularities. And you will get in the habit, and I'm looking at their cardiovascular exam for any irregularities. I'm looking for cardiac murmurs. I'm looking for clicks, rubs, but specifically, I want to feel the pattern of their pulse. I want to document if it's regular or if it's irregular, or is it regular with extra systoles? Because there's a difference and you can feel it. If it's regular, beep, beep, beep. And then all of a sudden there's a beat that jumps in. Beat, 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 beat. This is regular with extra systoles, most likely. You're dealing with PVCs or PACs. If you have something that feels very irregular with no pattern, you're probably looking at AFib. And what I did to learn how to feel this and see the image in my mind is I put my hand on their pulse when they were getting their EKG done. So I would see on the screen what I was feeling. And then eventually you'll get to the point where you can feel it and see it in your mind. And almost always when I do this, I'm right. And it's just a matter of practice. You're looking at the extremities for edema because you want to think about CHF and respiratory causes. You're looking at clubbing in the fingers. And again, under the skin exam, I'm looking for flushed skin on the face, thinking about alcohol, kind of makes me want to drink. And of course, because I am a cardiac PA first and foremost, I'm always thinking that palpitations are cardiac until proven otherwise. But this is probably not the most rational approach because of course, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, but you have to think outside the box with your workup. So again, got to think about as far as ordering, get a TSH. You want to look at their thyroid function. Thinking outside the box, you want to also think about, do they maybe have sleep apnea? And are they feeling these palpitations that are waking them up from a dead sleep? This is another clue that possibly they have sleep apnea because patients who wake up in the middle of the night, gasping for air, their hearts racing, usually anxiety is not going to wake you up from a dead sleep. But if you're hypoxic, your body will wake you up and you'll be in fight or flight mode. And so they're going to feel their heart racing out of their chest. And a lot of times when we do a Holter monitor on them, we'll find their AFib at night or that we'll find tachycardia or even bradycardia because of their sleep apnea. And it's an easy thing to correct. You just have to identify it, but you can't identify it if you don't think about it. One of the other things you want to think about is dietary issues. So obviously you're thinking about things like, you know, are they taking dietary supplements? Are they drinking a ton of caffeine? Are they downing monster drinks to stay awake? But also you want to think about a low grade food intolerance or food allergies, because if they eat food that is not good for them, or for example, if they're lactose intolerant or gluten intolerant, there's all sorts of a myriad of symptoms that can come with that, that can cause palpitations. And so sometimes that's a diagnosis of exclusion. And it's obviously not something that you would get to the bottom of in your first visit but it's something you should think about. You also wanna think about, are they in high output failure? So you're looking at a CBC because you wanna see, are they anemic? Is their heart having to pump faster and harder because of their anemia? Again, anxiety, always on the differential. And you wanna think about adrenal fatigue. And I think that this is one of those things that is sort of like fibromyalgia. I think it's in the same category in a lot of providers' minds. 
but it's something that's real and it's something that can cause weird palpitation symptoms. And again, it's sort of on the end of the spectrum of diagnosis that it would be more of a diagnosis of exclusion that they would get worked up somewhere else, but it's something that we always think about. Additionally, one of those other zebras, although at least in my practice is not so much of a zebra, is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And this is actually a dysautonomia that can cause all sorts of weird symptoms to include brain fogginess, to include hypotension, to include palpitations. This is another diagnosis that takes a long time to get to the bottom of because the symptoms are so vague and often their tests will all be normal. Their echocardiogram will be normal. Their EKG will be normal, except for some very minor sinus tachycardia. And they'll have symptoms that seem out of proportion to their exam, and they'll be anxious. And it's actually something that's real. There's a clinic at Stanford that we send our patients to. And unfortunately for these patients, there's not a lot of clinical options as far as treatment, and it's very frustrating for these patients. So just know that in the back of your mind, if you have somebody with a lot of weird symptoms that don't add up to anything on their labs, in fact, their urine will not look concentrated. They will not seem clinically dehydrated. But oftentimes, I have a couple patients who, when they get really symptomatic, they actually have been sent home from the emergency room without getting any IV fluids. And it turns out, I had one lady who came to see me. She got discharged from the emergency room, and she felt unwell. And I had her go back to the ER. We put a couple liters in her and she felt better. Her heart rate improved and she was symptomatically better because that's one of the things for these patients that can trigger an episode is they get dehydrated. So preventing it and correcting it are sometimes some of the treatments. So what is the workup for a patient with palpitations? Now, obviously the EKG first and foremost front and center, and we're looking hard and fast with our chief complaint-based eyes, which I'm gonna talk about. And we're looking for those four things that are dangerous. And again, those four things are brugadas, hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, prolonged QT, and WPW. Also, obviously, we're looking for things like VTAC, SVT, and the arrhythmias. So the lab work, you're gonna get a CBC, you're gonna get a CMP, magnesium, BNP, looking for heart failure, TSH and some sort of pregnancy tests if they're female of childbearing age. And you also want to get orthostatic vital signs. And there's a lot of argument about the clinical utility of orthostatic vital signs. But I think in a palpitations patient, it makes sense. You're going to get an echocardiogram and you're specifically looking for low ejection fraction. Now the ejection fraction normal is 55 and above. And so if a patient has a very low ejection fraction, usually 35 and lower, there's an increased risk of ventricular arrhythmias, specifically ventricular tachycardia. And so that's one of the things we look for on the echocardiogram. But also we're looking specifically for left atrial enlargement because patients with left atrial enlargement are again more at risk for paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. Bigger their left atrium is, the more they are at risk. And so sometimes you can actually see this on the EKG. You can see a notched P wave. And when it looks like there's a little notch in the middle of it, very indicative of left atrial enlargement. So these are patients, if they have palpitations, I really want to see them. And I tell them, if I see left atrial enlargement and they haven't had any AFib episodes yet, I kind of give them carte blanche to come in wherever I'm working and get an EKG because I don't want them to have a stroke. I'm a big stroke prevention advocate. And so I teach them how to check their pulse. I also look for 
mitral valve prolapse on the echocardiogram because this is something that's in the thinking outside of the box criteria because patients with mitral valve prolapse, there's a syndrome called mitral valve prolapse syndrome where patients with just very, very minimal mitral valve prolapse can have, again, symptoms out of proportion to what you are seeing on the echocardiogram. They'll have maybe a trace or small amount of regurgitation, but they will feel weak and have palpitations and have anxiety. And these patients too are in that category of getting written off as being anxiety. The next step in unlocking the mystery of their palpitations is to figure out what kind of ambulatory monitoring they're going to need at home. You need to figure out if they need to wear a Holter monitor, which can be anywhere from 24 to 72 hours or if they need something longer than that, which is called an event monitor. That's the biggest decision in the pathway that you're gonna make, is how long are you going to torture them by wearing this 24-hour EKG monitoring at home? Patients look at it like torture, but I often sell them on this because they really wanna know why their heart is flip-flopping in their chest, and they are willing to endure it if you can capture something. And so usually, if it's somebody who has symptoms every day, that's easy. You put a 24-hour Holter monitor on them, they're done. If it's every two days, 48. If it's every three days, 72. Easy decisions. But if it's anything longer than that, then you want to get an event monitor. That is something that actually has the capability of doing live transmissions if there's anything serious. In fact, I had somebody who I thought was going in and out of ventricular tachycardia. I had a high clinical suspicion because they had a lower ejection fraction and they had two episodes of garbled speech and they were worked up for TIA, CBA was negative and for some reason there was never any ambulatory monitoring done at home. Instead of doing a Holter monitor, which wouldn't give me real-time live monitoring, I chose an event monitor and the company actually called and said he had an eight beat run of ventricular tachycardia. And it was so completely rewarding to be able to tell him, I think we know what's going on and why you're having garbled speech because you're not perfusing when you're in VTAC. So he was referred to the EP clinician in our practice who successfully managed his VT. So event monitors are great for that. But if you have somebody who is having a lot of PVCs and you're thinking about possibly referring them for ablation, for the electrophysiologist, you need to quantify how many PVCs they're having in 24 hours because that's going to be the decision maker. And all electrophysiologists have different thresholds for this. But in general, if they have more than a quarter of their day spent in PVCs, they're at risk for having a lower ejection fraction. If they fail medications, then there's more of a electrophysiologists will be more willing to try PVC ablations, which are not entirely without risk, but sometimes patients will get so desperate to be rid of their symptoms that they will think about doing an ablation. Now, the other thing you need to think about is, are their symptoms being caused by ischemia? Do they have any underlying coronary artery disease? Now, if this is a low-risk patient, you can do, if you have it available, a coronary artery calcium score. That will quantify their calcium load and indirectly look at coronary artery disease. If you are a little more worried about ischemia being an issue, then you can order a stress echocardiogram, which is, in my opinion, actually killing two birds with one stone. You can actually get 
a resting echocardiogram, looking at their valves, their ejection fraction, and then you get a treadmill. And while they're on the treadmill, you can look for any abnormalities on their EKG. And then when they lay down right after they've run on the treadmill or walked fast, then they lay them down and they do a stress echo. And this looks for wall motion abnormalities. So if they have wall motion abnormalities, you gotta think about, is there something blocking the vessel feeding that wall? And so that's an indication that they might have ischemia. So I love the stress echo, but a lot of times, patients who are older can't walk on the treadmill. And so you have to think about something else. In those patients to rule out ischemia or coronary artery disease, you would do a chemical stress test. It used to be we would use adenosine, but now we use a chemical called Lexiscan. So we do Lexiscan stress tests. Patients don't have to walk for this. And we also get nuclear perfusion imaging, which will tell us if there's any perfusion issues. So you've done their workup and you've concluded that they have no ischemia and that their problems are all electrical. Maybe you didn't find anything on the 24-hour Holter monitor. Maybe you even went as long as 30 days, which is usually the maximum amount of days authorized by insurance for an event monitor, and you didn't find anything, but they're still having symptoms. Usually that's reassuring. In 30 days, if something really bad is going on, you will usually catch it. That's not always the case though. The patients that we really worry about that we don't find anything in 30 days, and a good example of that would be young syncopal episodes or somebody with what we think may be recurrent ventricular tachycardia, two things that are possibly lethal, we may consider putting in what's called a loop recorder. And basically what that is, is a very small device that gets implanted into the patient's chest wall and it will record their ECG continuously and it can stay in their chest as long as three years. They'll come into the office on a routine basis and we'll use the same device that we interrogate pacemakers and ICDs with. We'll put it on their chest and we'll actually pull up an interrogation of any events that they've had. And the software in this device is very smart because it'll pick up if there's any atrial fibrillation and if they've had AFib, how long, what percent of the time they've been in it since they've last seen you or last been interrogated, and if they've had any asystole or if they've had any fast heart rates or ventricular tachycardia. So the device is very smart and it stores this up for you until you see the patient. Now, the most recent generation of the loop recorders are actually even smaller, and they're about the size of a paperclip and barely noticeable in the patient's chest. And the good thing about these devices is in the upcoming future, and mind you, this is being recorded in October 2014, this will become an office procedure, so an in-office insertion into someone's chest wall under local anesthesia and cardiology practices. This is kind of exciting example of all the advances that are being made in helping people determine pathophysiology of their arrhythmias. What's even better if they have palpitations is if they come in and they already have a device in their chest because if it's a pacemaker or ICD, I can look to see how much AFib they've had and I can see if they've had any high rate episodes associated with their AFib and it will even capture some strips for me to look at and review. And of course, if they have VT, it's gonna pick that up as well. The good thing and the bonus is if they have a 
ICD because in the ICDs, especially in the Medtronic models, there's something called cardiac compass. And this allows me as a provider to see how well their CHF is being managed. And you can actually see on a graph before they even have symptoms if they're heading into heart failure. And what's really interesting sometimes when we interrogate these devices is it will tell us, it will show us a pattern basically. And the pattern sometimes we see is every month there will be a small spike in fluid and you can go back and you can say to your patient, well, you know, during the end of the month, did you feel kind of tired? Did you feel short of breath? And they'll say, yeah. And you can actually back that up with what you're seeing on the screen. And a lot of times, especially in the older population, what you'll see is patients will try to spread their medications out or they will run out because they took too many. And so they'll have a small spike or they won't be compliant. And you can tell that or sometimes we'll see that it corresponds to a hospital admission. Now, I think it's a good time to clarify what pacemakers can do and what they can't do. What pacemakers can do is they can tell us about AFib, but they can't stop it or mediate it. And that's kind of frustrating to explain to patients. Hey, we put this box in your chest, but yeah, you still need to take all these pills for your AFib. Really, really frustrating for them. And sometimes, this is rare, but sometimes their AFib can go so fast that their device will actually shock them. Now that's rare and you can usually set the parameters to make sure this doesn't happen. And if they have a pacemaker, you can really go crazy on their beta blockers or any other medication that you're using because their heart rate won't drop too low. So that's always beneficial. Now there is a device, there's something called CRT, cardiac resynchronization therapy, that can actually help your heart squeeze better. So there's a lead in each ventricle that sort of helps coordinate the motion of the lower chambers to increase your ejection fraction and improve heart failure and quality of life. And that's an exciting device. And so that's basically just an ICD with an extra lead. And then the ICDs can obviously stop VTAC or VFib. But again, all the pluses where you get to look at any, any episodes that they've had that have been monitored, they all get stored in these devices and we can tell what's going on. Now let's break down these high risk findings one by one, starting with hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. This is also known as hokum, and it's caused by a thickening of the ventricle. So the ventricle gets big and fat and thick and the blood has a hard time pumping out sometimes when there's a high demand for blood. So when patients exercise or they're under stress, the risk of syncope is increased. And when do you think that this is diagnosed? In what part of the patient's life is this usually diagnosed? Well, this is actually a trick question because the answer is actually autopsy. It's actually not usually diagnosed until somebody dies because, again, going back to myth number one, young patients don't have heart disease. And I think because that's so prevalent that we're always thinking about the fact that, well, they're young, there's probably nothing wrong, they're not getting those EKGs if they come in for a complaint. And we're not doing them in sports physicals unless we have something high risk in the history or the exam. Or they may not have had any symptoms up till then. So this is actually just not being diagnosed until they're dead and they're dying and they're dropping dead on the, the high school fields. So it's up to us to catch it. Now, is EKG the way to make the diagnosis? Absolutely not. It is made by echocardiogram. But the problem is, is that we don't always have echocardiogram available to us to get a same day echo. 
And it's even more rare to do that in the emergency room. This is something that's usually done if a patient's admitted. And obviously in a clinic, this isn't done. So what you have to do is you have to risk stratify the patient and the EKG helps you do that. So there are certain findings that are associated with hokum that will make your risk elevate. So finding number one are deep, narrow, skinny Q waves and leads one, AVL, V5, and V6. Couple that with high voltage in the septal lead, so V1 and V2, so big QRS complexes, and add on the fact that they're young, have had some sort of symptoms in the setting up exercise or stress, including near syncope, palpitations, or syncope, and that's a patient that has hokum until proven otherwise. There's only a few things that cause Q waves. Now, you have to remember that Q waves can be normal. They can be normal if they're small, less than one-third height the R wave in lead three. You can also have Q waves with MI, but the MI Q waves are usually fatter, they're usually wider, and they're usually bigger. There's nothing else really in cardiology that causes these deep, skinny, narrow, what Amalmatu likes to call as dagger Q waves because they look like daggers hanging off the cuirass complex. And there's nothing else that really causes this except for hokum. So again, the pattern you're looking for is a deep, skinny, narrow Q wave and leads one AVL, V5, and V6 with a lot of voltage and they've had some sort of symptom that's brought them in. So hokum, they need to not play sports, they need to go to a cardiologist and they need to get an echocardiogram. This needs to happen fast and know that, especially if they're seen in the emergency room, know that their tests and their workup in the ER or even if you're working them up in the clinic will be normal. Chest x-ray will be normal. Labs will be most likely normal. Everything will come back normal. So you have to get the echo and you have to scrutinize the EKG. And these patients should not be cleared to play sports. Finding number two is Wolf Parkinson's white. Now this is seen again mostly in young patients and their chief complaint will usually be palpitations that come and go. These are gonna be the palpitations that last a long time or at least more than a second or two in a young person. And they might have associated with that near or frank syncope, although it's rare, but they'll usually have some high fast heart rates. And the way you're gonna detect WPW is by again using your chief complaint based eyes and looking hard at the EKG. You're looking at the upstroke of the QRS and what you're looking for is called a delta wave. You're looking for that slurring of the upstroke of the QRS complex. It's very subtle, it's very easy to miss, and I often find it's easiest to see in V4. So these patients need to be referred to an electrophysiologist and they need to be considered for ablation because what's happening is the impulse from the SA node is going down an accessory pathway to stimulate the ventricles and so it's a bypassing the AV node and so what that does is it creates a shorter PR interval less than 0.12 to 0.20 so it causes a shorter PR interval and they're also prone to tachycardias because there's nothing slowing them down. There's no AV node to be in the way to say, hey, buddy, slow it on down a little bit. 
So those patients, again, need to be referred to EP, electrophysiology. Number three is prolonged QT. Now, a lot of times people will ask me, well, how long is too long? And that's a good question because in general, anything over 460 milliseconds is too long. Technically, if you want to split hairs in men, anything above 450 is long and anything in women over 460 is long. And the way I remember that is because women get an extra 10 seconds on their QT because when we go on a date, we need that extra 10 minutes in the bathroom to get our hair ready, right? So women are 460, men are 450. Anything longer than that is technically considered prolonged QT. But here's the problem. All the machine software seems to be set different to what it's going to consider prolonged QT. So at 500 and up, sometimes it will flag it in the machine software interpretation, but sometimes it won't. So you actually have to look at it. There's nothing on the EKG that's going to point you and say that this is a prolonged QT. But what I will tell you is that instead of doing a bunch of high level calculus calculations to get the QT, just look at the EKG and there's two numbers in the QT section. There's first a QT and then a QTC. The QTC is typically the second number. And that's the number that you can rely on to use to see if it's prolonged. However, with that being said, the only time you really can't rely on it is if there's artifact, because sometimes that can confuse the machine. I had a case where I had a patient with tremors and I thought they had a prolonged QT of 713, but we repeated it when they weren't so cold and it was actually normal. So before you can accurately say that the QT is prolonged, you have to have a clean EKG. And of course, last but not least is Brugada syndrome, which is very near and dear to my heart, no pun intended, because one of my favorite patients uh, was that, again, that 21-year-old who went into cardiac arrest next to his wife. And he's my one of my favorite patients because not only is Brugada is just a great thing to find to prevent that from happening. But the outcome on his case was so wonderful. And I think it was so wonderful because he had all of the chain of survival in place. He had early CPR from his wife. He had a good, fast ambulance response time. He had early defibrillation. He got to the emergency room and he had a very excellent emergency physician that actually picked up the Brugadas. And it was a very, very soft finding. And if this ER physician hadn't have looked very hard at it, I think that it's possible it couldn't have, it could have been missed. I think that this is a great case of something that went right. And hopefully, we can spread more awareness about Brugada syndrome because it is a sudden cardiac arrest cause in young people. So what is Brugada's? It's a channelopathy. And it predisposes people to VTAC or VFib. Sometimes patients will have symptoms. Sometimes they won't. In, ca in the case of this gentleman, he never had symptoms. He never had any reason to go to a provider and get an EKG. And the good thing about Brugada's is even if the patients are not symptomatic, they can have the finding on the EKG and that will clue us in to send them to the cardiologist because they basically need an electrophysiology study and most likely an ICD to keep them from dying. Now, the finding, again, is not going to be flagged by the machine software. What it might say and what it will usually say is that there is an incomplete or complete right bundled branch block. That's the first thing. The next thing, if you see that in a young patient and you have the history that's consistent, so young, sudden, 
death in a family member, go back and look hard at V1 and V2 because in V1 and V2 you're going to see what looks like a ski slope ST elevation and you're not going to see any reciprocal changes on the EKG like you may normally see with ST elevation in a STEMI. You're just going to see a very, very, very steep slope that looks like a ski slope in V1 and V2. If you see that and the machine flags in complete or complete right to bundle branch block, they definitely need to be referred to cardiology. They're at risk for sudden cardiac arrest and it's not something you want to miss. So what are your take-home points here? Your take-home points are young people can have heart disease and when I say that I mean we have to look for the four bad findings on the EKG. We need to look for prolonged QT, we need to look for the delta wave of Wolf Parkinson's white, we need to look for those skinny narrow dagger-like Q waves of hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, and we need to look for the ski slopes in V1 and V2 of Brugada's. Hopefully the next time you see a palpitations patient in clinic or the emergency room, you will know what to look for. Thank you so much for listening. There is more available in this line on cmeforlife.com, and thank you again.